thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, you're asking the questions and we're answering them. We've assembled a dream team of five minds to take on your scientific conundra, including why don't whales get the bends? What happens if you set fire to your space station? And do brains burn more calories when you're thinking hard? Hello, I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And let's begin by meeting the team. We have Ben Pilgrim. He's a chemist at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. Tony Steer is a nutritionist from the MRC Human Nutrition Research Unit. Chris Basu is a vet at the Royal Veterinary College and also a recent FameLab finalist. Long-time Naked Scientist Dave Ansell is with us to talk physics. And finally, I'm a medical consultant from Adambrooks Hospital. And on that note, let's open the surgery doors. If you'd like to get in touch with the Naked Scientist, you can email Chris at thenakedscientist.com, look us up on Facebook, or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Let's kick off with this question that's come in for you, Ben, from Luke. I was wondering, what would happen if you covered a swimmer with a hydrophobic substance? Would they go faster or slower? So firstly, I'll sort of just recap what a hydrophobic substance is. So hydro obviously refers to water. Phobic means dislike. So a hydrophobic substance is something that doesn't like water, such as oil, which won't mix with water, will sit on, sit on the surface of water. So if we think about trying to move quickly through water, the main thing that stops that is drag. That's the problem moving kind of through any fluid at speed is how quickly you kind of make your way through the fluid. And this is actually a very interesting question. Um, If you think back a few years ago, uh, you might have seen a number of swimmers wearing these full body suits, which were subsequently banned. They're called the shark Um, skin suit, weren't they? And these suits did a number of things. One, they sort of smoothed off the body to sort of reduce, um, you know, sort of little holes and things like that, which, you know, might cause turbulence in the flow. But they also were coated in certain sorts of substances um, that, trapped small amounts of air near to the surface and meant that the water flowed over the swimmer much more quickly. Did they work? Did they work? Yes. Um, They were reckoned to produce about a 2% increase in speed and a lot of world records were broken. However, this was then deemed that uh, this was uh, slightly unfair and say they were subsequently banned and limited in size. So to kind of go back to the question, the main thing with going fast is drag. If you can have a sort of hydrophobic substance that repels water this can make a small increase but the main thing is just to do with the shape at which the body is that moves through water and so therefore if you streamline your body but then you add something that repels water from your skin it stops the water sticking to your skin so much so you should go a bit faster yes that would be the bottom line 
Yes, but it will be marginal compared to, say, the shape and other things like that. Ben, thank you very much. Tony, one for you. Uh, This is a question that's coming from Tracy. Uh, Heaven knows why, but she says, um, could you survive purely on a diet of avocado? What do you think? It's an interesting one. Um, Avocados um, have got things going for them. So, for example... They are quite high in what we call a sort of a healthier fat, which is the monounsaturates. And the monounsaturate fats have been shown to sort of modify your blood fat levels more favourably than things like saturated fat. So when we have them, although you're getting a lot of fat calories coming in, it's kind of good for you fat in the same way that olive oil is said to be good for you fat. This monounsaturated. Yeah, so, so overall you want to aim to reduce the amount of fat in your diet, but the fat that you do include you want to modify, and, and avocados have got that kind of monounsaturated fat that, that is more desirable. One of the other things that avocados have got is they've got some reasonable amounts of fibre. So around three and a half grams of fibre per hundred grams. So that would be sort of an average avocado. They also contain potassium, like many fruits and vegetables. So making them mildly radioactive. Yeah. <laughs> because bana- aren't they, Dave, aren't bananas a little bit radioactive because they've got a lot of potassium in them? Yeah, it's the same, it's the same isotope of potassium which they use in our hospitals and it's just floating around. Potassium 40. So if you eat a bit of potassium, then, then you're going to get irradiated slightly. Yeah, because also much. Brazil nuts are a bit radioactive because of the soil they grow on. And someone did tell me that you can, you can equate a chest X-ray to the equivalent of a bag of Brazil nuts you get about the same dose of radiation equivalent to, to doing the two things. Anyway, I didn't ah. mean to hijack your answer, Tony. No, so do, very, do carry on telling us about avocados. Is, um, is Tracy so going to be okay? The, the, the other thing that's quite interesting with them is there's some suggestion that adding avocados to, to other meals can enhance your carotenoid or vitamin A absorption. The evidence is kind of a little bit weak in that area. I think it's still really to be confirmed. Is the rationale just because there's loads of fat in the avocado and vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin, so it helps? Absolutely. What I would say, though, is on the downside, avocados are not really a great source of things like vitamin C. They're quite low in calcium, for example, not much iron. So actually... Would you really want to survive just on a diet of avocados? I think it would be a bit boring and, and actually you are going to be lacking. And you are going to get some deficiencies. Yeah, you Tony, are. Tony, thank you very much. Uh, Chris, Chris Basu, you're doing your PhD at the moment at the uh, Royal Veterinary College. Yes. This question is for you. It actually comes from Ultraviolet Keating. Now, there's a name to remember. They want to know, could a bee the size of a person fly? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I also like just the imagery, imagining, you know, um, a bee the size of a person. It's great. But we do have this problem when we talk about scaling small animals up to larger sizes. If you imagine a cube, if you double the size of that cube, you actually increase its weight by eight times. And that's just a, a generalized law of scaling. When you scale up a bee to the size of a human, if you keep the shape and size of the wings the same, the wings actually become too small for the bee to get enough lift to get off the ground. The muscles are too small and also the material properties are just not good enough anymore. So the wings might become overly heavy, they might just break before anything actually happens. There's no way they'd be able to get off the ground. But there's fundamental problems as well. Bees don't actually have lungs. They rely on the normal diffusion of air going from the outside into the inside of the body through a network of tubes. And if you scale a bee up but to the But aren't we the same? A... Don't we have a network of tubes that carries air from the outside into the inside of our we body? We do, but we have active breathing. So we actively draw air into our chest and then we've got a circulation which distributes the oxygen around our body. But bees don't really have that. So there comes a, there's a size limitation that they can get to before they will just 
suffocate. So if you imagine a bee the size of a human being, it wouldn't last long at all. It would just fall over and die. It would be quite a sting as well, wouldn't it? But the honey would potentially be to die for, wouldn't it? Yes. We've heard from Les, who, apart from having a question for you, Tony, he says to me, I've heard the oldest part of your body is 10 years old. Is this true? Quick show of hands then. Who, who thinks that that, in our panel here today, who thinks that's true? This is, yeah. this is assuming you're older than 10 years, right? Okay, so <laughs> you going for true? Think, Chris? I think so, yeah. Tony? Possibly. Sitting on the Tony. fence, Dave? If you're female, it's definitely not true. Well, actually, it, it, well, it, it's definitely not true anyway, because actually your brain cells, you are born with those brain cells. They're formed as you're developing, and they have to last you a lifetime. And that's why we get neurodegenerative diseases when you lose brain cells. Also, there are other cells in things like your retina, which is part of your brain. Those photoreceptors have to last you a lifetime. Muscle cells are only very slow replacing uh, replacing themselves. For instance, cardiac muscle in your heart is only very, very slowly turning over, if at all. So that muscle has to last a lifetime. But some cells, including fat cells, do last about 12 years. And we know this because someone wrote to us at The Naked Scientist a little while ago and they said, can I carbon date my gran? And this is Mm. someone from South Africa who said their grandma didn't know how old she was because she'd never been told the date of her birth. They were intrigued to find out how old she really was because they said she really is very old indeed. Can we find out? And in fact, there's a lady called Kirsty Spalding at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and she did some studies where they have done carbon dating of fat cells and you can use DNA for this because the DNA incorporates... uh, atmospheric carbon which has got a carbon 14 radioactive signature in it and we know what the radioactive signature is doing over time so we can use that as an index of age and they found that fat cells last about 12 years and then they sort of disappear and you replace them with new ones so there you go les you're both right and wrong at the same time because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> some cells are about 10 years many are much older than that some are younger than that can you answer les's question though tony he says is wine suitable for vegetarians i can't think why not as far as I'm aware, I, I think it is, although it does contain... I'm trying to think of the wine-making process. Yeah, a lot of wine isn't suitable for vegans. If you're worried about animal byproducts, uh, a lot of alcohol, so beer and wine, and it's manufacturing, there's a process where you want to clear all the sediment from it. And a lot of processes use, I think it's fish bladder cells, I believe. Can you count it towards one of your five a day, though, more importantly, Tony? No, absolutely No, even not. though it's made of all this Sorry. healthy grape juice. No, that, that's definitely not one of the five a day. But, I mean, red wine, there is an evidence base that, that red wine does have a nutritional benefit, doesn't it? Because if you've got the pips and the seeds, there's lots of tannins and antioxidants. There are some. It. There's this idea that actually you've got phytonutrients in red wine that are sort of beneficial in terms of looking at your, you know, lowering blood pressure a little bit or acting as antioxidants, reducing your risk of cardiovascular diseases but um, I think the, the the totality of the evidence is a little bit cautious as to how much you should really have for that kind of beneficial effect so I, I think sort of drinking in moderation is still recommended. Good call drink in moderation. <laughs> You're listening to The Naked Scientists. And this week we're joined by an expert panel who are taking on your science questions. In the studio, Ben Pilgrim, Chris Basu, Tony Steer and Dave Ansell. And Dave, uh, this is a very nice question, uh, and it comes from David Ole, another Dave, on Facebook. And he says, could a spinning spacecraft be the solution to the problems of microgravity? So microgravity is really bad for you because all sorts of things stop working. Your bones kind of get very, very weak or your muscles get very, very weak. What does it actually mean? 
basically microgravity if you're in space if you're in orbit um you're just fall free falling which means everything is falling with you which means that effectively you're weightless because everything is falling exactly the spe same speed as you are so you can push off and you can float around it's really quite fun but quite unhealthy so the suggestion it's actually been suggested for a long time i think it might have been arthur t clark who came up with it 2001 uh, a space odyssey had a spinning space station a spinning space station because if you spin something if, if you get a bucket and spin, spin it around your head then you need to apply a force to pull it in to keep it going in a circle and but the evidence is if you fill it with water the water the doesn't, water doesn't come fall out. out so yeah. basically you change the direction of gravity and if you're in space the same thing happens and you create artificial gravity so if you had a big ring that was spinning then yep. a person standing in one part of that ring in the same way as the fairground ride creates a sort of a centrifugal effect you feel thrown outwards and the ride pushes you back in to stop you flying off the space station would effectively push up through the floor at you. Yes, I think the reason why I haven't done it so far is that either you've got to spin very, very fast or you need to be very, very big and that makes everything very heavy and basically no one's built a space station big enough or had people up there long enough to make it worthwhile doing yet. So if you had something very small that was turning very fast, would that nonetheless, whilst making some gravity, make people feel extremely unwell? Whereas the rationale would be if you make it very big, the sense of rotation for a person would be smaller but they'd still nonetheless get the the effect you probably would feel quite uncomfortable because everything apart from anything else everything everything would behave very very strangely because you would get not just the centrifugal force you get what's called the coriolis force so if you threw something into the middle of the spaceship it would actually kind of spin around and end up going in a completely different dis, dis direction to when you'd expect it to be um, I don't know at what scale, at what point it is actually worth doing. There's certainly they have there have been talk about doing it if you're sending someone to Mars over a few months, so they're still in one piece to get get there. Um, but certainly so far, no one's tried. Dave will tell us later on what happens if you set fire to your space station. NASA have made an announcement that they're actually going to do the experiment of lighting a fire in space because no one actually knows what happens. Ben Pilgrim, here's a question for you which comes from uh, Diksha who's in India and says, how does chloroform work to make you unconscious and does it really do what we see in the movies? Do, do we see people put a cloth over someone's face and make them pass out? The first thing to say is that the movies definitely have it wrong with regards to chloroform. So chloroform has been used as an anaesthetic for about 150 years. And the kind of misconception that you have from watching movies is that sort of by breathing a chloroform soaked rag, you'll sort of knock someone out within a second or so. This this isn't the case. You need to be breathing it for several minutes in order to make someone pass out. And they need to be breathing it constantly um, in order to keep them passed out. Um, in fact, about 150 years ago, a famous medical journal, The Lancet, published a paper asking the criminal classes whether any one of them could divulge their supposed secret of being able to knock people out so quickly because it'd be very, very useful for medicine. Needless to say, no one has come forward to this state. It was called a blow um, to the head, probably, wasn't it? Rather um, than <laughs> I think Queen Victoria was the first monarch to undergo uh, yes, a cesarean. Yes, um, for a couple was of her yeah, last, uh, last pregnancies. How does it work? Um, this is something of debate and indeed all anaesthetics um, there is considerable debate about how they actually function how they actually cause uh, someone to sort of pass out obviously they affect the the nervous system uh, one idea is that they affect the flux of um, potassium ions and this affects the body's response to nerves. Another idea is that the chloroform interferes with the cell membranes and slows down the passage of nerves, which makes people less likely to feel pain. So there's a couple of sort of ideas of how it might work. I should say that um, it was replaced because say, it was very dangerous um, 
dangerous for a couple of reasons. One is that actually you just breathe too much of the gas in your lungs. And this fills up your lungs and stops your lungs getting enough oxygen. And so you just die from not having enough oxygen. But also, if you start fiddling around with the nervous system, then it can also cause uh, people's hearts to fail because um, hearts rely on kind of electrical impulses to work. And if you mess around with that, you can die of a heart attack. So don't do it, yes. is the bottom line, because people do abuse other kinds yes. of solvents like butane out of gas refills yep. and glue because there are solvents in there or because they work the same way. Yes, very dangerous. But it is in, extremely dangerous for those reasons. Thank you, Ben. Quick one for you, Chris, just to squeeze this one in. Uh, Guido wants to know, why is it that whales don't get the bends? He's referring, of course, to some of these things like sperm whales that can dive to kilometres under the ocean for you know half an hour, an hour at a time in search of things like squid. But then if you do this as a diver on scuba equipment and come up too quick, you get bubbles in the in the bloodstream, you get the bends. Why don't whales suffer in the same way? Well, uh, spoiler for the question, they actually can get the bends, we think. The bends is decompression sickness. So as you say, when scuba divers go down underwater, they're using equipment which matches the pressure of the air to the pressure of the water around them. So as you go down underwater, the water is at massive pressure. It's all pushing down on you. When you're breathing in air under pressure, air is about 78% nitrogen. Under pressure, that means more than nitrogen gets pushed into your blood. And when divers want to come back to the surface, they come up to the surface, the pressure around them decreases, and all that excess nitrogen gas comes out of their blood. So imagine if you've got a... a so when you say comes out of their blood, you mean as in while it's still in the blood? Exactly. If you imagine um, like, a, like a can or a bottle of uh, fizzy drink, if you open the cap really quickly... If you open it too quickly, you see all these bubbles suddenly magically appearing. Whereas if you do it slowly, you don't see that happening as much. And that's exactly the same as what's happening in the blood of scuba divers when they're coming up. Now, So to, when they come up slowly, when why, they come up, why doesn't it happen? Exactly. When they come up slowly, it allows the blood to form an equilibrium with the air much more slowly. If you in do the it lungs. Too, exactly. If you do it too quickly, then all that gas comes out of the blood as bubbles and that causes problems. Whereas so what you're saying is then if, they, if they've got lots of this dissolved nitrogen in their blood as a scuba diver, mm -hmm. as they surface slowly, because the blood's going past their lungs, it can slowly surrender the nitrogen to the lungs, exactly. lungs inflate, they exactly. breathe out the nitrogen so harmlessly. The, so you, in effect, the divers are actually off-gassing, they're breathing out that nitrogen gas slowly and safely. So what do the whales do then? The whales have one major, major advantage. They're not breathing compressed air. When whales come to the surface, they take a breath. A lot of whales actually um, take a breath and then they exhale before they go down. So they've got environmental sea air, if you like. And as they go down, that air actually gets compressed. But it's not the same as a scuba diver breathing in massive lungfuls of compressed uh, of, pre gas. of, of pressurized air. Exactly. Yeah. But they still have a little bit of air in their lungs. You know, they can't empty their lungs and their trachea, their windpipe completely. So they've got this little bit of air. It means they can actually get some pressurized nitrogen seeping into their blood, but it's in really, really small amounts. And they've got a couple of things that helps them. They've got lots of special fat in their body, and that helps to actually mop up um, the excess nitrogen. And they can also store the air in uh, funny places. Their trachea is actually, uh, their windpipe is actually distensible. So when they go down, their lungs get compressed, but a lot of that compressed air gets forced up into their trachea and it, it doesn't enter the blood at all. It's really amazing. These uh, cuvier uh, beaked whales, they can actually dive down to three kilometres, which is 300 times the atmospheric pressure 
pressure uh, of the Incredible, air. Incredible, isn't it? So air. you mentioned at the beginning, you said, well, actually, we think they can get this. So why do they occasionally get the bends then? The other thing that they do, um, they're very sensible. Like uh, like scuba divers, they also don't come straight up to the surface. You know, they come nice, nice and slowly. But when something disturbs that behaviour, they might actually be prone to getting the bends. A few years ago, um, people were noting um, certain... Um, uh, associations between sonar activity of uh, military vessels and whale strandings. And they actually found in these stranded whales the telltale signs that they had um, they had the bends, their decompression sickness. And when people look at bones of whales, uh, bones actually have little telltale signs as well uh, when the animals have had chronic exposure to decompression sickness. There are these um, little spots on the bone. So we can actually see that whales do from time to time tend to suffer from it, but it's something that they have learned to live with. Thanks for that, Chris. Now let's uh, look at this question. Uh, big story this week, Tony, was the sugar tax that's yeah. been announced um, by the government. Um, first of all, what actually do they mean by sugar tax? What are they proposing? Well, what the government want to do is, is they want to introduce a levy onto soft drinks. So um, what they want to do is introduce this levy from about 2018 and it's to do with the amount of of sugar per litre or per 100 mils that's in in soft drinks. Um, So they want to tax the industry um, which means that there'll be I think it's around 5 grams per 100 mils at a lower level and I think 8 grams per 100 mils is the higher level and it's, it's sort of in that region. Now This is the idea that they want to try and tackle our consumption of soft drinks because we've got a lot of evidence to show now that actually sugar-rich drinks um, not only are bad for your teeth and dental health, but actually what they tend to do is they undermine your appetite control. So the liquid calories that you have in soft drinks don't seem to register very well that you've consumed them. And if you consume excess calories and liquid calories, you consume more calories, you gain weight. So they are... We did a demo on this programme, actually, where Giles Yeo, who works on how the brain decodes how Uh much energy you're taking into your body, gave me a bunch of apples and said, you're going to eat the number of calories that have gone into what I'm going to drink and we're going to see who gets there first. He drank the equivalent of the apples as juice. I had to eat them. He finished off half a pint of apple juice and and that was the equivalent of six apples. I'd managed two apples in the time it took us... Yeah. to do that and I mean that's the point really, he's making it's very easy to put a lot really of calories in very quickly to consume excess calories in that liquid form so of course looking at our, our concern around obesity and overweight this is one of the one of the ways that we want to try and create an environment that that, that perhaps makes soft drinks less desirable haven't people always eaten sugar Tony, this isn't a new thing. We've had sugar people eating honey and so on for thousands of years. We have, but I think it's much more prevalent. You know, if you look at the number of processed foods we have, you look at the availability of of soft drinks, sugar-rich drinks, you know, we've got them readily available in supermarkets, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's really easy to get those kind of high-sugar type foods and drinks. Um, in terms of the sugar tax, it's, it's actually really difficult to know when they roll it out what, what the impact will be. So one of the things that might happen is that, that manufacturers may be encouraged to reformulate their soft drinks, which would, would then sort of get them down to a lower lever, levy, tax levy. One politician um, said all it'll do is encourage some people to switch to cheaper, nastier brands that are uh, cheaper to start with, but with just as much sugar. But even with the levy on, they then become the price of the more expensive brand they preferred 
before? It's, it's, re- it's, it's really difficult to know how it's going to roll out because the other way is that actually what might happen is the industry may absorb that tax increase and what you'll see is that there may even be an increase on all drinks across that product range. So we know it's bad, we're just going to make you live with it because you like it. So it, it, that may result in a sort of, you know, if, if all the soft drink prices go up, that may result in sort of some people perhaps not choosing them. What the about only... if we look at other things? Because we've had, we've had the salt lobby have tried to get down the amount of salt in food. We've also had uh, fairly punitive taxes in some countries applied to things like cigarettes and alcohol. Is there any evidence these sorts of, of sort of carrot and stick manoeuvres work? I think there was some evidence. I mean, I, I know that they cite stories a lot from, from Mexico where they introduced this, this sugar tax. And I think there was some evidence that in some groups of the population, you, you did get people um, not buying them and perhaps choosing the, the, the diet versions. And I think for it to work, I think really actually what the public need to see is a really clear price differentiation between the, the high sugar drinks and the no sugar drinks. And once you see that, it begins to make the choice a lot more obvious. So how this will roll out in reality, we don't know. But I think one of the important things is actually good surveillance so that we can monitor um, what the kind of consumption patterns are over the next few years. Um, and that's one of the things that we do in our unit, actually. We, we do one of the nutrition surveys. So it, it, it's difficult to know. But what we have to remember, actually, is this is just one part of um, tackling the obesity epidemic. It's not the solution, but actually if we have a whole range of things, eventually it, it helps create that better environment that, that helps encourage people to make better choices because it's really difficult for individuals. You know, we're living in an environment that makes it so easy to choose and, and consume these foods. It sadly does. Chris? Yeah, this might open up a can of worms. Are diet drinks any more safe than, than normal sugary drinks? I think what you might be thinking about is there was um, there have been some studies. I think there was a particularly um, notable one that was carried out somewhere in, in, in Italy in, in rats looking at um, artificial sweeteners and whether actually excessive amounts of artificial sweeteners may cause or increase the risk of cancer. I think what they found was they did, they did see this increase with the artificial sweeteners in this cancer risk. But you have to remember that the rats were kind of given these these sort of doses of carcinogens which put them at risk of, of developing cancer anyway. And I can't quite remember, but I think it was something like the rats were drinking an equivalent of about 300 cans of coke a day, which wasn't quite the, the realistic or the, or the way that you would replicate right. it in human studies. So I think there was some evidence, but not, um, not enough. Tony, thank you very much. Until people can tell you that this gene, this gene, this gene might give you an IQ of this, then we might think about, well, do we want to do that? In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we find out if new genome engineering tools could mean we're on the road to designer babies. Plus, we unpack the latest cancer breakthrough and our gene of the month is making a terrible racket. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also in the studio, Ben Pilgrim, who is a chemist, Chris Basu, who is a vet and a zoologist, Tony Steer, who's a nutritionist, and Dave Ansell, who's our guest physicist. So, Dave, we said earlier that um, you're going to tell us about what would happen if you started a fire in space. NASA have announced this week that uh, they want to do some experiments on what would happen if there were a fire in space. Why on earth do they want to do that? Well, the problem is that fire on Earth, we understand very well, it works because air heats up, 
expands, then it floats upwards, and that draws in more air underneath, and the flames go upwards, and the air comes in from the bottom, and it burns away happily, and we understand that really, really well. In space, um, basically, it's microgravity, which means that everything's falling, so heavy things don't fall faster than light things, which means that light things don't float up above heavy things. So fire in space behaves completely differently. It's entirely dependent on the rate at which oxygen can diffuse into the fuel, and that also means it gets cooled down less quickly because of the air rushing past it also cools it down and to be honest they just don't know what's how it works and they don't know how especially a big fire will happen because um, luckily there's never been one on a spaceship so just in summary then a candle on earth you light that this will produce a chemical reaction that produces some heat which causes the hot gases which are the combustion products a lot of carbon dioxide and that kind of thing yep. they're going to rise up out of the way pulling in nice fresh air with lots of oxygen and that's because the candle knows in inverted commas where up and down is Yes. because of Earth's gravity. If you're in free fall in space, there's no net up and down. So the gas just grow, blows up like a sort of bubble, the, exa- the exhaust gases, and this would choke off the flame, one would think. It, but because it's not getting cooled down as quickly, it still can burn. It burns much more slowly and it's much less predictable because there's no up, no down. You don't know what direction it's going to travel so in. So what are NASA going to do? So luckily they're, the cargo ships which they're sending up are the one other kind of ships which have an oxygen atmosphere because most spaceships don't have an oxygen atmosphere. There's no people there. Who cares? And so they go up to the space station, they unlo- unload a load of kit and then they just go down and get burnt up in the atmosphere. So someone's thought, aha, we can use this. Let's put a big bo- a box inside with some stuff to burn on the way back down a couple of months time when it's on its way back down they're going to set fire to it and see what happens they don't think it's going to actually cause the spaceship to be how damaged. they monitor they've got cameras in there or they've something got cameras in there lots of sensors gas sensors temperature sensors as much as they could possibly get into a small box um and it's going to be a four foot long two foot high box so it's actually quite big for sending up into space and hopefully that means that the next space station they build they'll understand fire a lot better which means they can build it to cope with fires a lot better because at some point it's going to happen and it could be very very sure. nasty. I mean have they got various over-engineered solutions in the present space station just in case there were a fire and that's obviously adding a lot of weight and if you could save a lot of weight because you engineer things slightly differently because you don't need that it would obviously make space travel yeah definitely whenever you've got uncertainty engineers will increase the margins and make everything heavier more expensive and more high tech and if we can get away without it or we might find that there's some great big holes in the defenses and you could burn out a space station and we don't know that it's going to happen chris how do people plan to put fires out in space anyway because you can't use you can't use sprinklers because the water would just You'd have away. to be hanging yeah. on when you, if you had a the fire, fire extinguisher. You just you'd hit the back. You'd hit the back <laughs> of the wall. I think. I mean, you can. I guess for small fires, some kind of fire extinguisher will work because as long as you hold your feet, oh, the astronauts yeah, kind of trained to stand on things, yeah. and as long as they're expecting it, they can deal with it. I think extreme fires, there's halon. Um, you can pump halon gas into the chamber, um, which also will kill any people in there. Um, so you've got to make sure you evacuate first. Yeah. And I guess if it's really, really extreme, you can just vent all the air out of it and um, and there's no oxygen there to burn. Thank you, Dave. Ben, here's a question from you, uh, which comes from Helen, and uh, she's written to chris at nakedscientist.com and says, if plastics require fossil fuels to be produced, then why can't we just harvest or extract the energy back after the plastic articles aren't useful? I think the short answer to that is we could if we wanted to. So one of the main ways we get energy is from our kind of carbon-based fuels and they're sort of carbon, carbon and hydrogen. They get burnt in oxygen. That makes carbon dioxide and water. And that reaction releases a lot of energy. 
our plastics are also contain uh, carbon, contain hydrogen. And if we wanted to, we could burn plastic after we've done with it. And that would also release a lot of energy and we could use that energy to supply our everyday needs. The reason why it's not done, well, one, um, we think about fuels that burn cleanly. Obviously, we don't with their kind of carbon dioxide and global warming and so on. Um, we want to try and move away from uh, that sort of uh, energy production. But you probably may have heard that kind of coal is considered a more dirty fuel than something like gas. Well, plastics often don't burn very cleanly. If you've ever kind of burnt a bit of plastic on a fire or something, you probably noticed a very bad smell. And so it doesn't burn cleanly, produces a lot of particulates, can produce very toxic gases. And so this isn't a, a nice thing to burn, which is why it tends to not be done. Sometimes in some countries incinerate them, but that's why we uh, unfortunately have to bury a lot of our plastics. Dave? I guess the other thing is it also takes a lot of energy to make plastic on top of much more energy than it would take to make the same amount of oil. So you're a lot better to recycle it if you can, because then you get that energy back. And it's not sitting in the ground, not going anywhere for a thousand years. Tony, this question has uh, come in for you from Hayley. Hi, Naked Scientists. I've noticed that I feel very tired after a day studying at uni, even though I spend most of the day sitting. I've heard that our brains burn about 20% of our daily calorie intake. But my question is this, do brains burn more calories when you're thinking really hard? So she's absolutely right. The brain does require around about 20% of your, your daily energy intake. Um, the brain relies on glucose. It has to have glucose for energy. So unlike other parts of your body, so for example, or, you know, other organs or muscles which, which can use fatty acids, the brain um, has to use glucose. And it needs around about 120 gram, grams of glucose a day. Um, most of the evidence indicates that actually um, you don't see a significant increase in energy consumption with people doing kind of mental tasks. There have been some techniques where they can scan metabolic activity in kind of different regions of the brain and it's looking at how the glucose sort of moves and, and is utilised in different regions um, and there is some suggestion that when you're given a specific task you see a sort of a more metabolic activity and glucose utilisation in different regions of the brain but these kind of overall the overall impact to sort of total energy requirement is very, very minimal um, and so the idea that, you know, if you're going for a day's lecture at a university, you, you need several chocolate bars, I'm afraid, is is Damn. not true. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> not going to happen. You know, maybe the tiredness could be could be many other factors. And actually, one of them is is good hydration. So tiredness and not being able to concentrate is um, often about making sure you're well hydrated. Tony, thank you very much. Well, let's take a look at a, another new story which has surfaced in uh, recent weeks. Uh, Chris, this one might be bad news for dog owners. What's this new disease which is cropping up? Yeah, in the past few weeks, uh, we've diagnosed a few cases of something called Babesia um, in some dogs in Essex. Babesia is a blood parasite that is transmitted by ticks. So ticks are these little eight-legged creatures that, that suck blood. Babesia is quite an exotic disease, which makes it sound nicer than what it is, uh, meaning it's a disease which is usually found in warmer climates. It's most often found in European countries, but we're actually starting to find it more and more in this country. Part of the reason for that is we have lots of import and export of pet dogs. So we have lots of dogs um, both just coming in from countries in Europe or pet owners in this country taking their dogs on a holiday, bringing them back. So we're seeing lots of these diseases coming in that route, but 
what's significant is we're now seeing these diseases in dogs which have never travelled abroad. And that's something that we found in the past few weeks in, uh, in these dogs. What happens when a dog gets this? It's a nasty parasite. It's a blood parasite, meaning uh, when it's transmitted by a tick, the little parasites bury themselves into red blood cells and they reproduce. And when they do this, the red blood cells actually break down, meaning the dogs can get very suddenly very ill from anemia. And the symptoms might vary just from a bit of weakness, a bit of tiredness, but sometimes the symptoms can be very severe indeed and the dogs can very quickly die. It's a very serious disease. How do you treat it? Can you treat it? It's a really tricky thing to treat. Um, There are ways that we can treat it, but the, um, the effectiveness of the treatment isn't fantastic. And even if the dogs, we think they're cured, there's actually no guarantee they're cured and they can relapse in future. So prevention is definitely better than uh, trying to mop it up afterwards. Tony? I just wanted to ask, is there any evidence it's transferable to other animals? And humans? Yeah, uh, so the so the parasite itself, Babesia canis, is quite dog-specific. Um, there are Babesia, different Babesia species that uh, people can get, um, but they're completely different. Um, so no one's going to get sick um, Uh, from their dogs which have this disease but because it's a blood parasite um, there can be transmission uh, between dogs but usually has to be blood to blood Um, so dogs that are fighting for example um, are more at risk but the more normal route is um, picking up from an infected tick. Dave? So why weren't we getting it in this country before? Is it a climate change thing with different Yeah it potentially is a climate change thing so the parasites uh, and the ticks as well they tend to be found in more warmer climates but as you noticed, um, we've had some very mild winters uh, over the past few years. It's possible then uh, that these diseases aren't dying off over winter. So it's possible they're actually starting to build up. And then controversially, a few years ago, there was a relaxation in the pet import and export rules. Um, prior to, I think it was 2012, 2013, you had to actually treat your animal for ticks before it came into this country. And they've relaxed that now, so you don't have to do that. So it might be linked to that as well. So that's a relatively controversial decision. We ought to watch out, shouldn't we? It just goes to show that where people and animals go, the bugs that are on them go too, don't they? Thank you, Chris. Dave, Kevin Fitch has been in touch. Uh, I love this one. He says, would dimples on planes make them more aerodynamic? He's thinking of the golf ball uh, analogy, turning a plane into the flying equivalent of a golf ball. So that's a really, really interesting question. So golf balls have dimples um, because if you had a perfectly smooth golf ball and you hit it really hard, what happens is you get really big swirls of air coming off the back of it. The air kind of detaches quite just after it's got around the first half of the ball and it detaches and you get these big swirls out the back of it and that causes a lot of drag. Now, if you have the dimples, what it does is create small swirls which actually tend to mean that the air detaches from the ball later And that means that actually you get less drag overall, so the ball goes faster and further. Now, planes normally are in a very different regime. They've they've carefully designed their wings, so you don't get very much um, turbulence off the top. And in fact, when you are starting to get this kind of turbulence, this detachment of the airflow, it's called a stall. That's normally something which you want to try and avoid. And so mostly when you're flying, dimples would just give you a bit more drag and make it worse. However, if you're 
about to stall, actually having dimples can be useful. And in fact, planes do have things like dimples. They're called vortex generators. And these are little kind of fins attached to the front of the wing. And they can delay the stall a bit so that the planes can fly slightly slower and land slower and land on shorter airfields and things like this. But most of the time, you don't need them and not all planes have them. Thanks very much, Dave. Now, Ben, time for your news item. This is about ExoMars. We've recently seen the European Space Agency sending a probe to Mars to sniff for methane and ostensibly look for life. What's this all about? So, yeah, the uh, European Space Agency uh, launched the the ExoMars uh, probe recently, and this is the latest in a series of um, uh, probes to go to Mars, and it's going to look for um, methane, and it's going to look for methane um, in the sort of search for life on Mars. So this has been sort of one of the biggest scientific questions for hundreds of years, actually, and if life on Mars were discovered, it certainly would probably be the one of the biggest scientific discoveries ever. Now, why methane is important is that if we think about Earth, most methane on Earth is produced by living things, a process called methanogenesis. This is where sort of imagine sort of like a swamp or somewhere like or a rubbish tip. There's not much oxygen. We get bacteria that are breaking down carbon-based products and they produce methane and they use this anaerobic respiration process to produce their energy. Now, methane in the atmosphere doesn't last for very long. The um, uh, radiation coming from the sun in the Earth's atmosphere can generate sort of singular oxygen. Then we get these things called hydroxyl radicals, and this breaks down methane. So atmospheric methane doesn't last very long. So if it's present, it had to have been generated reasonably recently. And a couple of probes that have been to Mars in the last 10 years or so detected presence of small amounts of methane. So there is methane in the Martian atmosphere. And then the question is, well, how did it get there? Now, there are other processes that can produce methane in the atmosphere other than living things. It can come from volcanic activity or it can also come from uh, the action of, again, the sort of strong sun radiation on sort of organic compounds that might have got there on meteorites or something like that. So the presence of methane doesn't suggest life in itself, but this probe has gone to look at it in more detail and it has some instruments on that will be able to detect perhaps what other gases are present to give us an idea on the source of the methane and also to look more specifically at the actual the isotope uh, composition of methane which will again help to track down its origin. Ben, thank you very much. Uh, Tony, I've uh, got a question for you from Dennis. Hello Naked Scientists. When I buy a pear, it's often hard and requires several days to ripen off at home until it becomes soft and juicy. So my question is, after digestion, do I derive more energy from the hard pear or from the soft pair? So I think the short answer to, to Dennis's question is um, is uh, no. Um, the human body is, is very efficient at extracting um, calories from food. So there is some evidence to show, and I've looked at this um, actually with ripe and unripe bananas, is that um, with the the riper banana, you get a sort of a, a, a slightly quicker rise in blood glucose. Did you eat an unripe banana? Uh, it, well, this isn't me. This is this is oh, um, this so is. So you paper. made some other poor person eat. So, that. It's disgusting. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't that bad. So okay. with the with the unripe banana, you see a sort of a slightly slower rise in blood glucose. So you could probably apply that the same kind of theory as well to the to the pear in question, um, but. Um, 
nevertheless, you know, the the, the, the digestion of the, of the starches and the sugars um, is very efficient. So we have the amylase in the mouth that, that breaks down the starch. You've got all the, um, the stomach really sort of mixes the food and breaks it down. So actually, by the time you get to the small intestine, around about 50% of your starch is already started to be broken down. And then the breakdown really into the sort of the monosaccharides or the simple sugars from the fruit occurs then in the small intestine. Um, so by the time um, it gets to the small intestine, you know, it's it's very efficiently broken down, very efficiently absorbed. Um, so I think the answer is... Don't worry about the ripeness too much. You, you'll, you'll get the calories from it. Tony, thank you very much. Chris, here's a question for you from Gary. He's wondering, why are some animals asymmetrical? For example, why do fiddler crabs have one claw which is bigger than the other? Why wouldn't it, for instance, be better to have two big claws? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, symmetry in an evolutionary sense uh, is really, really old. So most of the animal organisms around us are symmetrical. Uh, we can see that in us. So we're bilaterally symmetrical. So I have uh, two hands and two legs. Um, but we see some animals uh, deviate from this. The animals that we tend to think of as asymmetrical, the fiddler crab, for example, that's really one famous example, it is actually a symmetrical creature. A lot of these so-called asymmetrical animals actually start off being symmetrical at some kind of stage. That might be um, when they're either a baby or it might be before they're a baby, so when they're an embryo or a larval stage, if they're um, that kind of creature. The fiddler crabs, when they're larvae, they actually have two identically sized claws. And it's as they grow, it's usually one of them just becomes much, much, much larger. And there's often are they right-handed and left-handed then? I was, ju I was, just, the I was just thinking that in my head. I believe it's the left claw, but um, there's 50-50 chance I could be uh, yeah, right or, or right, on the other yeah, hand. And yeah, there's, it, there's, a, there's yep, about a 100% yeah, yeah. chance that most of the people listening to this are not going to know. Right, so yeah, exactly. you're on safe yep. territory. But why do they have that asymmetry? Do we know? It's a difficult question, you know, why did, you know, why did this evolve? Um, all we can do is we can look at the function so we can see what they actually do. And as far as we can see, there's two things that the fiddler crabs do with their, um, with their large claw. Uh, one is they wave it around and they try to attract a mate. So females generally like to select uh, male fiddler crabs with large claws. But we've also potentially identified another function, uh, which is um, the large claw actually helps them to dissipate heat. So if they don't have this large claw, they're more prone to heat stress as but they Gary, settle as around Gary on says, the sand. Why not just have them symmetrical? Because you could easily just predict your heat loss if you had to do the same. Yeah, it's true. Uh, it's difficult to say what at what point that's happened, um, but it might be something to do with the fact that growing a large claw is actually quite costly. It's quite expensive. You have to devote lots and lots of resources. So having one might be um, yeah, more, uh, more economical than having two. I suppose the bottom line is that evolution has conferred some kind of benefit and it's been selected for. So these crabs do this, but we don't actually exactly. know Exactly. So there's why. never a reason. Um, these things are sometimes random. Thanks for that, Chris. Dave, uh, can you help Alan out, who says, what would happen if you switched on a laser pointer in space? He's specifically meaning, would you be pushed along? Can the light make you move? You certainly can. Um, the effect is absolutely tiny, but you will get pushed backwards very, very slowly. In fact, um, they're planning to use the same principle to sail around the solar system. So if you build yourself a very, very, very large mirror and then the sunlight shines on it, then that reflect. Then the light is coming towards it in one direction, it's re reflected back again, that means it's changed its direction, and your mirror can, will, will get pushed away. The forces are tiny, sort of 
micro-newtons, certainly millinewtons. But because you don't need to carry fuel to do that, therefore you can keep your rocket engine going continuously all, as you fly around the solar system. And it means you can actually travel around the solar system, far, if you start, especially if you're going a long way, far quicker than you could in... Because over time it's just going to build up and build up and build up with no losses because there's almost nothing to hit you and slow yeah. you down again. It's in fact been suggested as one of the ways which you could get to another solar system would be to have one of these solar sails and a very, very, very large laser point at the solar sail and then sail on it all the way out to another star. And wouldn't that just be a, a sight for sore eyes, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would certainly laser cause sore eyes. <laughs> yeah, it certainly would. Dave, thank you. Quick one here for Chani who says, is flossing your teeth good for your health? The answer is yes. And scientists at the University of Otago in New Zealand have shown that if you don't floss your teeth, actually your risk of having heart disease and stroke is much, much higher because it increases inflammation in your blood vessels and encourages them to become furred up. Tony, here's a question coming your way. Hi, this is Margaret Feaster in Tallahassee, Florida. I was wondering if all my dairy nutrition were to come from ice cream, how much ice cream would I need to eat each day? Answers on a postcard. Ben, what do you think? How much ice cream do you think she has to eat to supply her daily nutritional intake from ice cream alone? Um, a kilo. He's going a kilo. Okay. Is that based on any kind of personal experience or you just uh, <laughs> <laughs> pluck that out the freezer? Oh, uh, maybe one or two depressed evenings. Maybe. No, um, uh, just, just, just a rough, rough guess. Um, Chris? Well, it depends on the ice cream. Um, well, on... yeah, I mean, if it's got chocolate chip in there, there's a bit, exactly, more, uh, a bit more calories in there. You, know, you get really dense, like, um, you know, Cornish clotted cream ice cream where you get, um, yeah, sort of more water. I don't know. I need to know more information. Okay, Chris is unhappy with the data supplied. Tony, what do you think? I think that's going to be a little bit tricky. So I think I read it that she was talking about dairy nutrition in the context of calcium. So just to start with that, for example, the average calcium content of a sort of a, a, a vanilla dairy ice cream is around about 100 milligrams of calcium per 100 grams. So an adult requirement is seven to 800 milligrams of calcium per day. So even to achieve that, you'd need seven to 800 grams of ice cream. Well, ben wasn't far out. He no, seems that was quite not close. bad. He's pretty good, yeah. Not bad. But um, the disadvantages with doing something like that that I can see immediately is things like the sugar content. So um, looking at sort of an average vanilla ice cream, the sugar content in seven to 800 mils of, of that ice cream is, is something like 150 to 160 grams of sugar. Now, considering the recommendations for added sugars are no more than 30 grams a day, that takes you way over. So it's probably a bad move in that respect. But also, I think just having ice cream in your diet means you're going to lack things like fibre, um, like iron. Um, and I think it's going to set you up for some trouble. Seven to eight hundred mils seems an awful lot because you kind of you kind of expect ice cream to be kind of concentrated milk. Is that because the calcium is actually not in the cream part of the milk? So the, the calcium is, yes, it's in the water soluble phase and, and that's quite interesting actually because often people say to me look if I switch from full fat milk to semi-skimmed am I going to lose out on my calcium and actually the answer is no and what happens is is once you remove the fat what happens is you get slightly more calcium in a semi-skimmed milk not a lot but slightly more and then again for skim milk as well. Tony, thanks very much. And so there you go, Margaret. The answer is you've got to eat a prodigious amount of ice cream, which is probably going to be health deleterious. Probably better to stick to semi-skimmed or even skimmed milk for your dairy requirements. That's where we must leave it. Thank you very much to our guests this week, Ben Pilgrim, Chris Basu, Tony Steer and Dave Ansell. 
Do join us next week when we're going to be exploring the science of artificial intelligence. There's certainly been no shortage of intelligence here in this studio this week, but what does the future hold for artificial intelligence? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.